0: Please remain standing for the reading of God's word from John 2, 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken.
1: Good morning, the kids are dismissed for kids' class. They're just excited. I mean, who isn't excited to go hang out with Mr. Jimmy? All right. All right. And I invite you to open in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. It's Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. Mark 11, verses 12 through 25. Well, what we're going to jump into today, if I'm just honest, is, is a bit of a tricky passage, uh, even to teach through and preach through, because it gets misused and abused a lot. It looks like Jesus just gets mad at a tree and kills it. Um, it looks like he gets just mad at these people in the temple, just starts tossing tables. And I want to say that there's actually something else that's happening in the passage, that this is an enacted parable. It's a parable that Jesus is teaching, and he's acting it out For them when we look at this fig tree and then what he'll do in the temple. Enacted parables are not new to the Bible when we get to the book of Mark. We can think of things like uh, the prophet Jeremiah being told to wear a yoke and walk around and tell Israel in the same way that I'm wearing this wooden yoke, something that they would usually put on livestock and and made it look like a slave. You Will be slaves to Babylon, and you will be put under the yoke of Babylon, of Babylon. We can think of the prophet Ezekiel, lays down on his side and makes this like model version of Jerusalem, and then acts out the siege of Jerusalem. It looks like a kid almost playing with toys. It's like weird that he does this, but God tells him to do it because he is warning them of what's gonna happen. And then finally, maybe the most outlandish of all the enacted parables of the prophets, and I'm going to put it up on the screen because you probably wouldn't believe me if I just told you what happened. But in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is told to go around and preach naked. Look at Isaiah 20 verses 3 and 4. It says this, And then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot with buttocks uncovered. The nakedness of Egypt. You might not like the preaching sometimes at Redemption Hill, but guess what? It can get worse. All right? These are enacted parables. They're not new to the book of Mark. They're not something new that Jesus is doing. When Jesus comes and we look at verse... Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. That's what I want us to see. That Jesus, as the true, better prophet who's coming to fulfill all that's been prophesied in the Old Testament, he's still grabbing from that tool belt that God has been using for, for thousands of years to communicate to his people. And so he uses this fig tree to teach us something about the temple. And the, the thing that I would really push to see that is in this passage, it's, it's a sandwich. It's a literary sandwich. We talk about a fig tree, we talk about the temple, and then the fig tree shows back up. And that's a good way for us to see that in a language where there's no punctuation, they're just writing all in capital letters, all strung together. It's a way the author is able to tell you, look, these things are coming together, and Jesus is teaching you something about the temple by utilizing this fig tree. So, no, Jesus doesn't get mad and just curse a fig tree, and you're not justified when you stub your toe to. Curse whatever you stepped on, right? Legos can't be cursed in the name of Jesus, uh, for those of you who have children. But we actually have to show some self-control. Jesus is showing self-control, and this is an enacted parable. So with that, let's read Mark 11, verses 12 through 25, keeping in mind that this is all coming together. It says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Talking about Jesus. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. But when he came and found it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and who, those who bought in the temple. And he overturned tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And as he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes what he says will come to pass and it will be done for him therefore I tell you whatever you ask in prayer believe that you have received it and it will be yours and whenever you stand praying forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses that is a lot happening in like just a handful of verses Figs, Temple, and the Role of Faith, and that's what we want to walk through today. We're going to talk about what in the world is Jesus doing. Again, I think these are passages that are used out of context all the time to justify loss of self-control and anger, or even justify things like just Jesus says to believe it and you'll receive it. And so here we go, new Mercedes, right? We can't do that. And that's not what's happening there at the end of that passage either. But these are all tying together. And we wanna see when we're students of the Bible and even when you get help, and this is a good time to even say again, thank you for Logos. You guys got me that. It makes me a better preacher. That was a gift to you in a weird way. This builds you up. So thank you for that gift to me because it was really helpful because what we're gonna see in passages like this is you have to know things about fig trees that I don't know. But luckily... My, the commentators did, and it really helps us understand. So that's what we're going to look at first at the judgment of this fig tree. So here we have, or if we remember from last week, or if you just want to go up the verse before, that Jesus had already been in the temple. He had a look around, he looked at everything. He didn't just start losing control and flipping tables then. But decided, because it was already late in sovereign confidence from last week, that he decided to go back and sleep with his disciples. They went back and they went out to Bethany. So they're staying outside of the city of Jerusalem. And they would go out, stay there, and then in the morning, enter into the city again. And as they're doing that, on the following day, when they had come from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And being hungry, he sees in the distance this fig tree that's in leaf. And he goes up to the fig tree and we can't find anything on it. He says, may nobody ever eat from you ever again. And the disciples, they hear it. Now, if, you don't, if you're not an arbiter like me, if you don't know much about trees, you just think, Jesus got mad at the tree for doing what it's supposed to do because Mark said it's not the season for figs. So why would he expect there to be figs on this tree? And now Jesus is just like angry that the tree's not doing what the tree's supposed to do. And you're like really confused. Aren't you the creator of the universe? You made it to put figs at this time. What is going on in the story but the reality is, is something really interesting happens with fig trees in particular. Before they come into leaf, which would happen around April. And this is Passover. Passover at this time would have been about the first week of April. And so around that time is when they come into leaf, right? So they start to show their leaves. Before that happens, so sometime in March, they would have started these little buds. These little bugs, buds in Hebrew are called pagim. These pagim are what eventually, in the summer become full and mature figs. But locals, it was normal for them to go and take these buds and as they grew these pagim, and they could eat them. They were edible and they could be eaten. And so if you just wanted like a light snack, it was a, a premature fig, but it was still something that people would eat and take. And so if you saw a fig tree in full leaf, because those pagimes came First, you would expect, if you were to look at that tree, there would be something on that tree that's edible. What that tree is showing is that there should be something there. This tree is a hypocrite tree. It's showing itself to be something that it's not actually. It's in full leaf on the outside from a distance. It looks like it should be producing some kind of fruit, this spagim. That's what should be happening. So when Jesus goes to the fig tree, he's, he's doing this as the omniscient God. He knows what he's going to find. He's bringing his disciples, and it's clear, Mark he, and his disciples heard it, because he wanted them to hear it. He wants them to know what's going on. Because when they go to the temple, the temple from a distance looks like it's supposed to look. From a distance, the temple looks like people are going through the motions, sacrificing the things they're supposed to be sacrificing, and honoring God. But on closer inspection, remember Mark 11, verse 11, he had already looked around. He'd already inspected this temple the day before. On closer inspection, when you start to tear out and look at the stuff, Jesus is finding they're fruitless. They're not producing the fruit that they say or appear to be producing. It's more about commerce. It's more about a place of trade than it is about a place where people would come and show devotion to God and worship the Lord in true heart and soul. The the commerce that's happening isn't in of itself necessarily bad. The Old Testament required these travelers to sacrifice these animals. It's great if you can come and just buy an animal there instead of bringing it with you. That part isn't the part that's the problem. The problem is what it's become about. The heart of these people, particularly the chief scri- the chief Pharisees and scribes, who, who later are the ones really upset. And in all the gospels, we start to see that's when they want to destroy him. That's when they want to kill him. Because they have made it all about the business and the economy. The money changers, even of themselves, what would happen is in the Old Testament, you were actually required to buy these things with a very particular kind of currency. And so you can think of a money changer. It would be like if you've ever traveled. When I, when I first went internationally, I had to go to an ATM and I had to take my American money and I put it in it. And then they would turn it into, uh, I was in East Asia, I was in China. So they turned it into a, a Chinese currency. Well, when they do that, they charge you, okay? So you, you, it's never just like a one-for-one trade. There's always some kind of markup to do that. These money changers were doing that as well. Right? They weren't just doing a nice thing where they're like, hey, there you go, this amount of currency for this, now it's an even trade, but they're marking it up and they're, they're benefiting off something that they're not supposed to. And this is what Jesus is inspecting, right? On the outside, it looks like everything's on the up and up, but on closer inspection, when you start to dig through this leafy temple that is looking like it's not, that looks like it's okay, it's not okay. And it's something totally different and so then when Jesus starts to teach about that in verse 17, he talks about at the very end, he quotes from two passages and we'll talk about the, the, the first part here in a second, but I'm actually gonna skip down to the second half of that, what Jesus teaches. So he, first he quotes from Isaiah 56, seven, but then he quotes from Jeremiah 7, 11, when he says, but you have made it a den of robbers. And in the book of Jeremiah chapter seven, that's what's happening. He, these people are coming to the temple and they're worshiping false gods, but then running to the temple and still sacrificing to Yahweh, the one true God. And they're saying, the literal saying, it's the temple, it's the temple, it's the temple. And Jeremiah is saying, don't use God's temple to justify your sin. See, what they're saying is I can sacrifice to Baal because if I do that, then I go and sacrifice to Yahweh and he forgives me of any sin that I might've done. And they're cheapening God's grace and they're a den of robbers. If you can ever remember uh, the story of Alibaba and the 40 thieves, Alibaba is this guy. It's an Arabic uh, folklore story. And Alibaba finds this secret lair. The 40 thieves are going. And it opens up and it's a cave. And it's got a rock on the cave. And it opens up with the magic words, open sesame. If you ever wonder, where does open sesame come from? That's where open sesame comes from. And they would open and Alibaba sees that. And this den of robbers, what it is, is it's again, it's like the fig tree. It appears to be something that it's not. Maybe we bring it a little more uh, contemporary time. It's like you go into an Italian restaurant and that's a bunch of mobsters sitting around, right? And you're like, there's no one who ever eats here. How does this place stay in business? And it's just like a hangout for the mob and they're like laundering money, right? That's a den of thieves. It's a place that on the outside looks like one thing. But on the inside, evil people are doing evil things. And that's what Jesus is claiming. He's saying, just like in Jeremiah's time, where people were taking advantage of the temple and saying, it's the temple, it's the temple. We're all good, nothing to see here. Don't inspect this too closely. He's saying that again. You've made my house into a den of thieves when it's supposed to be a place where everyone from all nations can come and pray to me. And what we see in this passage is that produces in Jesus this holy wrath against hypocrisy. And it results in Jesus then disrupting those temple practices. So, if I can jump back up a couple verses there, we say, And he came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. This is a disruption. Jesus is making it so they cannot carry out their bad, false, sinful sacrifices. This is not some kind of like uh, loss of self-control. Somebody makes you angry and so you just like lose it on them and then you're like, I can justify that anger because they did something bad to me. That's not what's happening. Jesus is disrupting their ability to go before a holy God and sacrifice and do things that would bring them more shame and dishonor. God does not like these sacrifices. He does not see them as acceptable. We see that all throughout the Old Testament, that when people bring sacrifices to the Lord that are not honorable and true, God is angered. He judges the people for that, and Jesus is disrupting that flow in his judgment, and even his judgment is saving them. Saving them from themselves. He's disrupting their sinful pattern. And I think that's what we can take away from this passage. Is that Jesus sees you when you're putting it all on the outside and everything looks like it's supposed to look. You come in, you do the right things, you wear the church clothes, you dress your Sunday best, whatever it is. You say the things that mom and dad want you to say. You know when you act like them. You say the things that your wife or your husband want you to say. But man, you've got your own secret thought life going on. And if anybody could just pull back the branches a little bit and they can expect and see that you're really not as fruitful as you're putting on, that causes in Jesus this holy wrath and his commitment and love for you is he will come in and he's gonna disrupt your ability to continue to live in those sinful habits. That Jesus will come and he'll flip the tables and he'll mess up the money, and he'll throw around coins. Why? Not because he's lost control. Not because he's just so angry and he can't keep it together. But because he is passionate about his people. He's passionate about your holiness and my holiness. And because he has saved you by his precious blood, he has committed himself to you. As we just sang, he will hold us fast. But he does that by holy means, even if that means disrupting your life. God will disrupt your life if if that is what it takes and requires to get you back to him so that you're not like this tree and not like this temple, putting on a front, looking leafy and healthy, but on closer inspection, fruitless. And that's the good news that we have, that we have a Savior who is so committed to us that he will disrupt us. Though the reality is, is we can only rightly interpret those disruptions and understand that Christ actually loves us, and even in his judgment in our lives, is doing that out of love. If we actually understand what the rightful purpose, not only that he is doing in our life, and that's what we see here. We talk about the temple. What is the purpose? What is God trying to do and accomplish in the world? We can only get that part right. We can only see what we're seeing in the front half of this passage if we understand the purpose of the temple. So that's where I want to look at verses 15 through 21. I know we're overlapping it's a hard parable. We need to do that. We've got to overlap a little bit today. So again, he came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, "'Is it not written, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers.'" And the chief priests and scribes heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So this is what we want to see, that Jesus is restoring the temple to what it's supposed to be But in a progressive kind of way, and here's what I mean. The temple at the end of this week is going to be no more. There will be no more need for the sacrifice of sin through bulls and goats. Jesus is going to be that once and for all sacrifice for sin. And what we know from the Bible as well is that Jesus has been teaching that he, in fact, is the the new temple. Jesus has said that in the book uh, of John. He tells them, I'm going to tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. And at the time, the disciples don't get it. But John tells us, we understood after he rose from the dead, he was talking about his body. And John has been using language throughout that book of John to say that when Jesus came, he came to tabernacle amongst them, which is a weird thing to say, but he's saying that because he wants us to see Jesus is the temple. Because throughout the Old Testament, if you're ever like, why do I have to read through Exodus about these like 500 chapters is what it feels like about poles being put up and this stuff. It's like, I don't understand what's happening. What's happening is the temple. Hey, Simon is the temple is the dwelling place of God. It's where God is going to meet with his people. That's what the temple is supposed to be. And what better way that God meets with us is what? God meets with us in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the new and better temple. And then what happens in the temple is Jesus dies for our sins, he raises from the dead, and the Holy Spirit falls on his people at Pentecost. And the Spirit of God comes to dwell with people where? In us. In the church. In First Peter uh, chapter 2, we're told that we are living stones being built up into a holy house that God might dwell in. And that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. See, when we talk about the church and we joke around about putting up pipe and drake. We've, we've joked around about tabernacle stuff. That is a joke. Because the tabernacle is right here. It's the people. Churches are not buildings and have never been buildings. Churches are a group of people who have committed to one another because that is the dwelling place of God. The dwelling place of God is in the people who have been redeemed by God because they believe in Jesus Christ, his son. And what Jesus is teaching is he's saying, all this temple, it's going away. And we're going to see that when he dies on the cross, the, the curtain to the Holy of Holies gets torn into, and access to God becomes to all people of all nations, because like I said, so he's doing that. He's disrupting all that. And he says here in verse 17, as he is teaching them and saying, he quotes from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 56. Is, not, is it not written? So he's putting some authority. Like, I want you to know, I'm not just making this up right now. Is it not written in the Old Testament? This was always the plan. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And I want to read just from Isaiah 56 a little bit seven verses, so we know what he's quoting and what he's pulling them and what he's teaching. I don't think Jesus just sat down in his teaching, like, taught one sentence, right? He was teaching these people, and Mark is just giving us the abbreviated version. Isaiah 56, it says, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come. The Son of Man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keep, keep, keeps his hands from doing any evil— let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, "The Lord will surely separate me from His people." So what we have is this: this whole event is actually taking place in a spot where only Gentiles could come. So Herod the Great added on to the temple, and he built a place for Gentiles who feared God. A Gentile is just somebody who does not have uh, an ethnic connection. So, a bloodline kind of connection to the people of God. They're not an Israelite. They would be able to come and, and pay some kind of homage to God in this part of the temple. But what's happening? The Jews are using it and they're holding these people back. And Jesus is saying, Didn't the Bible tell you that my house would become a house of prayer for what? People of all nations. They're holding these people back. And Jesus is saying, Uh uh-uh. uh. Not anymore, which is great news for, you know, tan guys like me. I'm I'm not Jewish, right? That's probably not a shock to any, I don't get to be in here. And I'm guessing most of you don't, unless this comes true. Unless if this happens and God's purpose comes through. And it says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a, mo- a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, they shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to them, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifice will be accepted on my altar, even foreigners. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So that's what Jesus is teaching. This old temple system where only a certain ethnicity would begin to come and worship God, he's saying that's no longer. Now, all people from all nations and all places get to have free access to God because Jesus is going to do that when he dies on the cross for sin, raises from the dead, and then puts his spirit in us. And that's what's being accomplished in the temple. And that's the purpose of what the temple is supposed to be. To make it even just a little bit more clear, I want to read from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, 7 through 12, because this is what Paul then explains after. Okay, so to keep the timeline. Isaiah says, this is what the temple's gonna be. Jesus then tells them, didn't Isaiah tell you this is what the temple's gonna be, a place for all people of all nations? And yet you're holding all of these people back. God is now doing something. And then Paul makes it really crystal clear here in the book of Ephesians when he says, of this gospel, the gospel is the good news that Jesus died for sinners like me and you and rose again from the dead. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given by me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, can also call foreigners or people like us the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things that so that through the church, even churches like Redemption Hill, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he was has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence. confidence. Confidence through our faith in him. That's a lot. Okay, we have now covered Exodus to Ephesians in like 10 minutes. That's a lot. And I know it's a lot. That's why we gotta be good students of our Bibles. Because at some point we have to ask this really good question. What in the world does that have to do for me right now? Is that gonna change me this afternoon? Is that gonna change me on Monday? Why does this big, long, biblical, from the beginning to the end thing have to do with me right here, right now? And for that, we have to transition to the last bit of this parable. We have to see the role of faith. Because at some point, we want to ask this question. If Jesus is making it possible for all people to have communion with God, to know him and love him, how do I get a part of that? How do I get that? And that's where the role of faith comes in. So now, verse 22. And Jesus answered them, after the tree had been withered, because that's what he's telling Peter, that's what he's showing them. I've cursed this tree, it's going to wither. The temple is going to wither. The curtain will be torn in two at the book of Mark, so it's going to come to fruition here in a little bit. This is going to wither. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God, Truly I say to you, whoever says this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass and it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. What in the world is going on? That almost sounds like three things that don't even go together. Like, have faith in God, throw mountains around, and then forgive people. How is that connected? I struggle with that a little bit. And here's how it all connects, the best that I can come to understand. Is one, again, Jesus—this is why you pay attention in seventh grade, okay? If you want to understand your Bible, Jesus is using hyperbole. if you remember back to literature class, what in the world is hyperbole? Hyperbole— is a gross exaggeration to make a point. All right? this is why we need to read so we can read the Bible well. Because it's a piece of literature. And that's what he's doing. And so if you look at this and you're like, whoa, that's literal. And Then you run out to like the biggest hill you can find because it's Ohio and Missouri and you don't have that. And you just like try to move it in faith. You're gonna be really disappointed because it's probably not going anywhere. All right, that's what's gonna happen. Jesus is using some hyperbole and he's saying, you have to have great mountain-moving kind of faith. Why would he say that? Well, what we know from a historian named Josephus is around this time, over 250,000 lambs would be sacrificed every year at the temple. That's a lot of blood. That's a lot of lambs for a whole lot of sin. And Jesus is making this big, audacious claim one sacrifice is all you need one forever for all time ever and you could see as a jewish person that you would say what about the 200 the quarter of a million that we do every year doesn't that like outweigh one jesus says no my sacrifice once and for all for sin that 's going to be what it takes first peter three eighteen he tells us this: for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You need great faith because you have great sin, and the reality is is every one of us in this room has this nagging won't-go-away tendency, even as Christians, to say, but i got to earn it. i just got to earn it. You commit that sin again, again, there's no way he's going to take me back. I've got to bring something to the table. God only loves me if I read my Bible every morning and pray. Then he'll love me. God only loves me if I never lose it on my kids. God only loves me if me and my spouse have a perfect relationship. God will only love me if my church attendance is perfect. God will only love me if, and none of that is true, the Bible is clear, he has died once and for all for sin. And he is calling you to put your faith in that one death, one resurrection, for all time, forever, forever. And you have this nagging temptation that is saying, I don't know that I'm good enough. Are you sure? Maybe if I just took this lamb and sacrificed it, just to be sure. And Jesus is saying, no, the unjust, the righteous was made in sacrifice for the unrighteous. A substitution was made on that cross for your sin and for mine. And he's calling you to have the kind of faith that says, It is enough and it is finished. I am one with God and at peace with God and reconciled with God, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done instead. His death, his resurrection, it's enough. It's enough. It's enough. enough. And he tells you that. And so then he tells you, so when you pray, believe that you've received it. And he's not talking about silly trinkets like material possessions. He is talking about the forgiveness of sin. You've received it. You don't need to do anything else. Your faith and trust in Jesus alone, it's enough. You're not enough because of anything that you've done. You're enough because of everything that Jesus has done. His sacrifice is enough. But this reality changes us. And then he gives us the example that changes us in that you will not have the ability to forgive others. And whenever you stand praying, verse 25, forgive. Forgive anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus is saying and teaching us this, that if you understand the radical forgiveness of God by your radical faith in the one once and for all, death and resurrection of Jesus, that you will have the ability to radically forgive all people of all things. Because this faith that we have is going to change us somehow, and this is one of the ways. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable about uh, this servant who owes his master um, this outrageous amount of money. It is just like he could never pay it back. If we put it into to modern terms, it'd be like a billion dollars, right? Like if I owed somebody a billion dollars, I would just be like, I'm in debt forever. And my kids are in debt forever. I can never pay off a billion dollars. And this guy owes him, and the, the master comes and he wants to collect on his debt. And he's like, All right, it's time to pay up. And then he says, Have mercy on me. I can't do it. And the master looks at that servant and slave and says, Your debt is fully forgiven. Well then that same slave goes to another slave who has a much smaller debt. If we may put it in our today's standards, it'd be like ten grand. Now that's nothing to bat an eye about. If I somebody owed me ten thousand dollars, I'd be like, hey, pony up. But it's not a billion dollars. It might hurt me to forgive that debt. It's gonna like change my life, it's gonna impact me. But it's not a billion dollars. And that's what he's calling him to do. And you know what he does? He takes that slave by the throat and says, pay me what you owe me. And the other slaves see this happening, and they know what this guy's been forgiven. And so they go back to the master and say, can you believe what this guy did? You forgave him for a billion dollars, and this guy comes up asking him for 10 grand, and he took him by the throat and threw him in prison. And the master goes to that slave and he says, how could you not have forgiven him that great debt when I have forgiven you such great a debt? And then he throws him into prison as well. And Jesus says, this is how my father would be with you if you do not forgive others. And that's what we want to see. In Matthew eighteen thirty-two 32 35, he says this, and the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay you all this to his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is what Jesus is saying, is we can have a radical kind of forgiveness because we have a radical kind of faith, the kind of faith that moves mountains because we see all that he has done. We no longer need a quarter of a million lambs to die for our sin year after year after year, But sin has been paid for once and for all in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Through him you can have forgiveness of sin and you can be free. And I want you to hear that. You can be free to forgive others their sins as well. Because if you refuse forgiveness, you will harbor bitterness. It will do you no favors. And God wants to disrupt your sinful patterns of unforgiveness. And move you to a place where you can be free. Because forgiveness will also bring you freedom. And there is a lot of nuance in that conversation as the reality is, is you cannot forgive somebody who doesn't ask you for forgiveness, but you can have an attitude that's willing and ready to show forgiveness and have freedom in that because that's how God interacts with us. He does not give us forgiveness until we ask for forgiveness in our salvation, but he stands willing, ready to forgive all. And we must be like our heavenly father. Father. And so that's gonna transition us then to this table, to communion with God. We commune with God by his spirit, by his death and resurrection, but we celebrate this table thinking of that cup which represents the blood of Jesus poured out for us in that piece of wafer, the bread the body of Jesus broken for us because we remember that in his death and resurrection, we have communion with God. You actually take this into your body as a symbol that God dwells within you and you fully commune with him. But Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 23 to 24, talk about forgiveness. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, then remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Why does that matter? Well, it matters if the temple is now the body of Christ. And Jesus is saying, if my body is you, don't take of my body if the body is disjointed. And so we have to say that. What the Lord's Supper enables us to do, and we're going to begin to celebrate this on a more regular basis. We do it once a month right now, but in April leading up to Easter, we're going to begin doing that on a weekly basis. And as we experience that, our goal is to see that become a regular rhythm of our church. And you say, why do that so often? Because we want to say on a weekly basis, we need to be asking those questions. Is there sin in the camp? Are there brothers and sisters here who are against one another? And we want to give you the opportunity in a very serious, tangible way. Do I need to go ask for forgiveness? There might be weeks in your life where you decide not to take at the table. Because you have to say, I, got, I, I can't do this. I have to obey Matthew 5. I can't go take at this. I'm going to go obey Matthew 5, and I'm going to reconcile reconciled with my brother or sister. And there are three things that I, so there are three things I want you to do. We're going to put this up on the slide. We'll give roughly a, a couple minutes here, and then everyone can come up. And Kendall will play uh, behind us, and I just want you to reflect on three things. And I'll go ahead, and I'll just kind of make a, a brief announcement when the, it's okay to come and take the table. And then at your kind of own pace, what you'll do is you'll stand up, come up the middle aisle here because there's lots of room there, Grab your elements and then filter out this way and come back up the middle to be seated, and that'll keep us all from stumbling on each other. We're going to do that, but before we do that, we are going to have some time of reflection. I'll let you know. I'll, do, I'll set like a two-minute timer here or something, and I want you to reflect on three things for you take the Lord's Supper this time, as well as understanding that we need to see that only believers take of the Lord's Supper. If you are not a Christian, if you not put your faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, it won't be weird. You can just sit right there. No one will call you out. It won't be strange, I promise. But you don't want to take of this. The Bible says you'll be putting judgment on yourself if you take this in an unworthy manner. The only worthy way to take the Lord's Supper is to take it believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that he is atoned for all of your sin. If you don't believe that, then don't take of this. Because what you're telling everybody in the room is I believe that Jesus died for my sin and rose again from the dead. And if you don't believe that, we want you to say this is a place where you can be honest. This is a place where you don't have to pretend anything. And so you can just remain seated and that's okay. And that's what we want to encourage you to do. We won't come hunt you down. We won't come do anything. But I want to encourage you to be honest. Remain seated. And for all of us, we can reflect on these three things. One is this, we reflect and ask, is there any unconfessed sin in my life? Am I hanging on to guilt for specific sin? Then I want you to display some radical faith, mountain moving faith in Jesus and say, Jesus has died once and for all for that sin. And I'm going to trust and receive his grace and take of this table. Secondly, I want you to reflect and ask, is there anyone that I have not forgiven? Is there a problem with people in our church in particular? Resolve to display forgiveness before taking those elements. And finally, reflect upon the goodness of Jesus and becoming the sacrifice for sin once and for all. Because this is a celebration. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together. That you would say, thank you, Jesus, that once and for all you have died for my sin. You could think through, if it helps you, you can turn in your Bible to First Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Let's go ahead and take a few moments of quiet reflection.